Welcome back to Off the Chart, Extra's eight-part podcast devoted to the groundbreaking Showtime series The L Word and the LA lesbians we can't stop thinking about. With the Generation Q reboot launching soon, we're looking back season by season at how the show revolutionized queer women's representation, getting it wrong as often as it got it right. Yes, we are reliving the L word so you don't have to. We are gathered here today to process season three and all of its breakups, sexy lap dances, a kidnapping, and of course, (laughs) the tragic and untimely death of Dana Fairbanks. Rip Dana Fairbanks! I'm Erica Lenti, senior editor at Extra, and I would never leave Carmen at the altar. I'm Eternity Martis, senior editor at Extra, and I would like a free trip on an Olivia cruise, please. I'm Rachel Giza, the editorial director at Extra, and I want Helena Peabody to pay for my birthday party. And I'm Michelle Turingen, managing producer of video at Extra, and I would never wear a dress to Cancinera. <laughs> All right, uh, let's talk about some of the big themes this season. I'm going to kick things off. They were basically hitting us over the head with this life and death theme. I think there was a literal direct quote at one point where Max says, It's life and death for me, too. To Dana, which is very fitting. Um, but we see uh, this this dichotomy between Dana and Max. Dana is losing parts of what she thinks makes her a woman after her mastectomy. For Max, the double mastectomy is, is the start of a new life for him. Um, as I said, he literally calls it life and death. We kind of see Max being born while Dana is literally dying through the show. Uh, and then we're just like beat over the head a little bit more with Kit, who is able to get pregnant when she thinks she's going through menopause. So that was really stark for me. Um, What about you guys? Speaking of life or death, self-preservation felt like a really big theme for me in season three. Uh, When Max was still living as Moira, you see his strategies for navigating uh, gender identity, how he handles harassment in public bathrooms and his hyper vigilance and awareness of, um, you know, homophobes and possible threats to his safety. And then towards the end of the season, as Moira transitions into Max, um, you know, we follow his struggles as he tries to attain the body he feels most authentic in. The reality that top surgery is very expensive, but, you know, he truly believes that these sacrifices are essential to his survival. You know, Jenny writes an entire book about how self-harm was an important coping mechanism while she processed through her childhood trauma. And in the case of Carmen, you know, she picks and chooses how much to disclose about her sexual orientation to her family in order to keep the peace and to keep these very important people in her life. Yeah. And there's also these shifting identities. So, Nobody is really in the same identity as or had the same identity that they did earlier on in previous seasons. So there's now Tina's desire for men, Max as a trans man, Shane as a person in a relationship now and not just a fuck boy. And <laughs> that uh, bet is no longer the breadwinner of the family. Um, and she has to deal with that as Tina becomes the breadwinner um, and a power tripping breadwinner at that. And then Kit's going through menopause and even Dana, who goes from this healthy athlete to a cancer patient. I want to jump in. Shane is definitely still a fuckboy. But... <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, she tries to be like less fuckboy and then like... Goes full fuckboy. Yeah. 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 Totally. How about you, Rachel? Um, well, I think sort of tied to that is, again, the theme of families and how do you formalize families or how do you think about family differently? So there's kind of a very heartbreaking subplot about uh, Bet's attempt to adopt Angelica as, as a second parent adoption. That is, you know, 
I think really underscores the vulnerability that Bette has as the non-biological parent of her child and also her very felt and real connection to Angelica. They're both biracial. And so I think Bette feeling as a black mother connecting to her black child and, and that relationship not being recognized. You also have Shane's dad, um, played by Eric Roberts, who feels like perfect casting to me, <laughs> showing up at the end and Shane having to deal with what it means to have this father and a brother. And also we get to meet Carmen's family. And there's also questions about monogamy and non-monogamy that come up. So how do you have a long-term relationship and do you want to define it in, in a heteronormative way or do you want to think differently about what it means to be in a long-term relationship and what the rules might be? Okay, let's recap. Let's start with Jenny. So in the six months between seasons two and three, Jenny has moved back home to Skokie, Illinois, and her family avoids discussing or even acknowledging Jenny's lesbian identity. Jenny gets involved with a self-proclaimed butch, Moira, played by Danielle C. And uh, when they get caught having sex in Jenny's parents' home, they decide it's time to move to L.A. So Moira begins to transition to Max, really the L Word's first trans character. What are our feelings about how the show handled that God, they were so bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, rewatching it, I think that every time the show offered something that I thought this is interesting or this is insightful, like actually, you know, there are moments when you see actual trans men in in the show. So at one point, Max goes to a support group or um, via another new character on the show, uh, Billy, who's played by Alan Cumming, Max sort of connects with another trans man. And so I think that there was at the time this kind of this this was a very new visibility for trans men. Unfortunately for me, I, I mean, Daniela C., is not a great actor. So, and I think the character was not well written. And so Max just is sort of portrayed as hapless and as a victim. And every plot point seems to be an after school special. Helena Peabody could have paid for my entire transition, which she pisses away in like a day. Yeah, and it also feels like throughout this season, none of the friends ever accept Max, but Max can't ever do anything right. So, you know, that scene where they're sitting down and Max can't afford this, like, ritzy restaurant they're eating at, like, no one really bothers with him. Um, And then he says something about tennis or or Dana's career and no one answers. Um, And then there's, like, the whole testosterone thing, that testosterone turns you into this, like, angry Mm -hmm. person who then Max becomes kind of, like, abusive, grabbing Jenny, like, acting kind of just in a way that is, like, traditionally male um, but there's also that awful soul patch oh, <laughs> that like Fred Durst <laughs> soul patch that was not working it was not convincing at all no and I, I think we joke about things like how the, the the show shows us like flip phones and things about how they've aged poorly this I think is the biggest example of how the show has aged poorly Kit is like full on turf when she's like you know it, it, it just It just saddens me to see so many of our strong butch girls giving up their womanhood to be a man. You know, we're we're, we're losing our our warriors, our our greatest women. Like, what the fuck? I couldn't believe how, like, outright turfy that was. And and I, I don't know. I mean, like, I wasn't part of the community back in 2005, 2006. I was still a young in. But I can't believe that that would be, like, acceptable to put on TV because I think that would be horrible to watch now. It's also a lot to ask 
for one character to represent an entire group of people. You know, there was a non-binary character in an early season, um, Ivan, of course, ACOG. But like what these two people are supposed to hold it down for the entire trans and non-binary community. I also thought like the show very much treated this topic like an afterthought. There's a scene where uh, Helena, Tina and Alice for a hot second discuss gender neutral pronouns. Yeah, I didn't know it was possible to go through life using gender neutral pronouns. Do you know what I heard tonight? Z doesn't like my new genitals, so I told here to fuck yourself. And that's it. Kind of like a, oh, we've served that. Now on to the rest. And that feels like an unfair way to approach this very important topic. Well, and, that, and that's why like, when you actually see Max sitting with the group of trans guys in this support group, and it's sort of like that would have been such an interesting story because you actually saw amongst those guys, and I think many of those guys were not, act, like I think many of those guys were actual trans men who might not necessarily be actors, but just sort of talking, as the mm-hmm. show often does. It'll often bring in sort of just real folks into it. Um, and so when they're talking about, oh, yeah, this is my experience with testosterone, go and see this doctor, or how about this, or even some of the stuff that I thought was interesting when Max gets really excited about, like, I have this thing that I can use to pee standing up. And I, so I, I thought, like, some of those details, which could have actually led led to a really rich kind of uh, exploration of a transition, and and but, but he was always alone. Like, I think what I felt with Max so much was the deep, deep loneliness of that character. I mean, I've always felt really uncomfortable in this body. So I've decided to transition. I'm changing myself from female to male. I think it's worth also talking about who portrays these characters. Having a cis actor play a trans man, what were your feelings about that? It's amazing so much if we, you know, fast forward to something like Transparent. And that show came out, I think, five or six years ago. And that was seen as incredibly, it was groundbreaking. Um, I think five years later, no one would try to cast a, a cis actor in a trans role in the same kind of way. I think that there's been this evolution of understanding that it is not appropriate or right to cast cis people in trans roles. I think when this came out, they're just that, I, I, I just, I'm not saying that it was right. I think it just wasn't even in the conversation at all. It wasn't even a consideration that casting directors would be talking about, nor was it the kind of thing, I mean, that would have been picked up in an era of social media, right? Like, I mm-hmm. think that the activism that's been enabled by people being able to talk at shows um, and at creators on social media platforms to say, this is offensive. Like, did you see last night's episode? That kind of dialogue wasn't, I mean, people were having it, but it wasn't happening on this kind of scale that happens now. So will Generation Q do a better job of representing trans men and trans women? Uh, There's been a fair amount of discussion about the show's past mistakes and whether the new show will make up for them. Hi, my name's Kim Burns. I'm on the social media team at Wired, where I also sometimes write about queer stuff. I was very young when The L Word first came out, so I didn't watch it until when I was in college. I loved the show. I actually didn't like Max's character much at first, and that was kind of the case for a lot of trans mass characters I saw on television even after that, and even ones who were played by trans men. And I think that was a lot of internalized transphobia and self-hatred because that was all before it came out. Obviously, Max is a bit of a problematic character, but still paved the way for a lot of what we're seeing today. And I'm really excited to see what the new show is going to look like with trans people on the writing staff and in the cast and all of that. 
Okay, let's move on. Rachel, why don't we chat about Shane and Carmen? Oh, Shane and Carmen. I think they're probably my favorite couple throughout the entire L word. Same. Um, I think there's something about them that makes sense. They have real chemistry. They seem like two people who would fall in love. And you understand their relationship. You understand why they fight about the things they fight about. You understand the way they connect. You know, there's this great line where um, Carmen says that... My girlfriend and I are two gold stars that have found each other. like a great line. Um, and I think you also see how much for Shane that who you know, grew up in foster care, how much Carmen's lovely, warm, very close-knit family is also part of the package that makes Carmen so appealing. Um, so you have this couple that really just are just so lovely, in addition to being like just super hot. Um, and so they have a crisis. Uh, Shane cheats on Carmen with Sherry Jaffe. And then Carmen cheats on Shane but then they work it out and then they decide in the aftermath of Dana's death that they're going to get married and there is this big lavish wedding paid for weirdly by Helena Peabody (laughs) I'm just not sure why Helena Peabody like you never get the sense of like was she that close to Shane like I don't know why Helena is paying for the wedding but anyway Helena is paying for the wedding and it's in Whistler which I think clearly speaks to the fact that there was some Canadian tax credits for them shooting (laughs) something in Whistler Um, and then Shane after meeting her dad, who turns out to be just a fuck-up, decides that she is also a fuck-up and decides to leave Carmen at the altar. (sighs) Boo. Who leaves Carmen at the altar? I I was so upset. She's just so beautiful. (laughs) I couldn't get over it. I feel like Sheen couldn't get out of her own head, though, right? And was just, like, defaulting to her usual fuckboy ways. It's all because of her dad. I love the line um, after Carmen finds out that Shane cheated and she's like, I'm asking you to be as civilized as a goddamn fucking bird. I was like, could you? (laughs) Like, could you? (laughs) (sighs) All right, Eternity, let's talk Bet and Tina. Tibet, we've we've vetoed Tibet, right? Have we? I'm starting to grow on me, actually. (laughs) I'm going to use it. So, Tibet. Um, So Tibet are back together and working on Bet adopting Angelica since she has no legal rights to her child. But Bet loses her job at the end of season two and is now having a really, really hard time coming to terms with Tina being the sole provider. So Tina is now working for her ex, Helena Peabody, who now buys this new movie company. But Tina um, starts to talk to men on the internet, and she's busted (laughs) by Bet um, for talking to this guy on a sex chat room, which Tina admits, and I believe the quote is, I fucked daddy of two on the internet. (laughs) So Bet is like, what? You like men now? And Tina moves out and starts dating Henry, who is a divorced dad, and Bet then considers suing Tina for sole custody of Angelica. And when Tina says that Henry wants to adopt Angelica, Bet does a Bet thing by kidnapping the baby. <laughs> she kidnaps the baby. She kidnaps the baby. I mean, where does she think that was going to go? Like, like, like what, how does she think that was going to end? Yeah. And like, where is she taking the baby? Like, I... Anyways, that is a very bad thing to do. Um, And in a way, kind of understandable because Tina has been very, very punishing to Bet this whole season. And it's really hard to watch because Bet is also at Tina's mercy when it comes to the adoption of Angelica. And then Tina shoves her new heterosexual relationship in Bet's face. 
So we've kind of been joking that Tina has been kind of boring and dry this, you know, for most of the season. So what do we think of this new Tina? She sucks. Yeah, I mean, she really sucks. I don't know anyone that's like, oh, t-. like when we were doing our BuzzFeed quizzes, I, I did it again recently and I got <laughs> Tina and I immediately closed the tab and I was like, that didn't happen. How many times have you done the BuzzFeed I keep trying to get someone other than Jenny, but it just, it's it's Jenny or Tina and honestly, I'd rather be Jenny. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like Tina just sucks. Also, I hate that Tina's like power accessory is a is a tie, like a necktie. Yeah. And the, it, she just like is not rocking it well. Like, don't please put that away. No, and it's like she started, you know, she has a new job and suddenly I'm like, is, is Tina wearing power suits? Like, what is Tina wearing? Like, Tina went from like just like shirts and stuff to these like collared blouses and like this like very commanding, like I'm here now. Yeah, now but that's Bet's thing. Exactly. Bet wears the power suits. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> she wears the power suits in the lesbian family. <laughs> what, what I think is also interesting too is like the for a show that's had its, you know, very troubling uh depiction of bisexuality is they really also seem to punish Tina by not just having her like she can't find like a cool guy to sleep with. Like it's like she ends up with like this kind of super boring guy with like homophobic friends. And also people keep talking, like she she keeps talking about like, well, I, you know, I just really grew up wanting the wedding dress and the house and the kids and the guy. And I, I feel like she also just leans into not a not a fluid identity or a bi identity, but really is like, no, I am going to be heterosexual. And I think that the show kind of also sort of sets her up to be like like an enemy or something. And then also she does, she at some point wants to not let bet. Um, after after fighting for Bet's rights, even when they break up, there's a point when she thinks maybe Bet shouldn't adopt the baby. Yeah, she starts leaning into her privilege that she has in a heterosexual relationship in which that's not a question. Uh, and that's really gross, uh, given that we we spent a bunch of time talking about the lack of rights that, that queer women had at the time. So, Tina, you suck. Yeah. Also, even with um, with Bet and this like biracial identity again, which we talked about in in earlier episodes, but Bet really doesn't talk about being black. And then suddenly, you know, like this, she sees her her child with this like super like het white family, and is like, my black child. I don't want my my black child being an outsider in this family. And so it's kind of the first time in a in a while since Tina and Bet get pregnant. Um, or use Marcus as a sperm donor, that we actually get to see Bet like being like, yes, I'm a black woman and I have a black child. Like this is very important that I'm in my child's life. And then super briefly, there's a bit of development with Kit. Maybe you can talk a bit about that eternity. Yeah. Oh, Kit. So we get to see a lot of Kit this season. Um, but Kit is going through menopause as she's trying to like spice up the planet, which she bought from Marina. But then she falls in love with Bet and Tina's much younger Manny named Angus. And Angus kind of helps her start recording her first album. But then as she's going through menopause, she learns that she's pregnant. And in a nutshell, that is Kit just being sad and tragic Kit. There will never be justice for Kit. I'm so sad. No, and Kit will not be, Pam Greer is not returning um, to the reboot. So there's no justice for Kit. Or maybe that is justice for Kit. (laughs) (laughs) She's no longer a tragic black woman. Justice for Kit. Okay, and last but not least, get your tissues ready for Alice and Dana. 
despite Alice and Dana's wholesome ending in season two, we come to find out that Dana has left Alice in the first episode because she wants to find closure with Lara, the sous chef. Um, wild. Alice is completely unraveled. Um, she's on like every antidepressant known to mankind. <laughs> and she gets in some serious TMI territory on a radio <laughs> show. Like she shouldn't have a radio show. No. Um, <laughs> no. It's basically just about Dana at that point. And then while Dana's with Lara, she ends up finding a lump on her breast and it turns out to be malignant. So she undergoes a mastectomy and later chemotherapy. So her friends all rally around her once again. She and Alice never do come together, which makes me so depressed. Alice tries to go on dates with other women, including a vampire. Like, I don't know what they were trying to go for there, but... Anyway, uh, but when when Dana falls sicker, um, she has an infection. Alice refuses to leave her side. Eventually, the nurse is like, just go outside a little bit. You've been in the hospital room for so long. And Alice goes outside. She goes to the gift shop. She buys this little potted flower stuffed thing and brings it back to Dana. But Dana has died. And then Alice collapses in the hospital hallway while You Are My Sunshine plays from the flower. I'm broken. Ugh, it was so hard. It was hard. I have to admit, I did not rewatch that scene. So I knew it was coming, and I'm like, hell no, because the first time was so traumatic. So I just scrubbed through it. Like, I did not want to, I didn't hear the flower play or nothing, because, like, it's just stuck in my brain all, like, after watching the L word. I cannot watch that scene again. But I feel like even scrubbing through it has to be a little painful, because you know, you see Alice break down while, like, yes. holding this thing, and you know what's happening. Yes. It was on mute, and it was still really sad. And I think, too, what was just as devastating is this whole question, you know, of family and connection is the way in which uh, the world, uh, the world that Dana does defines as family. Her group of friends, um, Laura, uh, Alice, are somewhat shuttled to the side by her family while she's ill in the hospital and Alice really pushes to, to, to be acknowledged. But then also at the funeral, um, there's this kind of um, like hetero washing, I don't know if that's the word, of, of Dana's life where it sort of sets up Dana's life as being sort of a tragic thing because she never found a man. And I think that that even though Dana had you know famously come out, I think that there was something that there were not just the echoes of a queer woman's experience, but to me, what it also felt like echoes of you know two decades earlier of the tragedy of AIDS and how many folks who had formed chosen families with guys who were dying were shut out and shut away from them um, in the in in their final days. And so there was also something not just tragic about this character, but it felt like kind of a broader kind of communal sad about what happens when queer folks die and who gets to be family and who gets to be seen as, a, as an official mourner or an official griever. Well, speaking of your chosen family, if I can step in and be a, a technical production nerd, the way they approached that episode was very interesting with the, with the clock, where you're getting constant updates of where the time is at and where, you know, Dana's chosen family is at. So you see, uh, you know, Bet at her uh, meditation retreat. You see Tina uh, holding Angelica at the lunch table. Um, I think you see Jenny and Max uh, holding hands as they're leaving their very awkward date with Tim and his new wife. Um, of course, you see Carmen and Shane doing what they do best, which is fucking. Um, but like seeing all these scenes strung together and bound together by time uh, next to 
Dana dying um, was just a very visceral way to tell this story. Uh, Even more devastatingly, um, Eileen Chaikin admitted later on that she regretted killing Dana. She said that that's the one thing the audience never forgave her for. And she described in uh, 2017, like how she told Aaron Daniels, which which was she brought her out for lunch and was like, "Okay, so season three, your character, she gets breast cancer and then dies like (laughs) no padding there, nothing. Uh, so, So she's just I don't know if I can forgive Eileen Chaikin for for killing Dana, but that's how it went. And we're certainly not the only ones uh, who are still mourning Dana Fairbanks. Hey, this is Kathy, co-host of Nancy. The thing that I cannot stop thinking about when it comes to the L word is why Dana had to go. She's my favorite character. She's lovely. I've spoken to the actors before, and I just... If we're going to forget a season, which I've heard that might happen, maybe just, like, also forget that Dana died because I think I need her back. I think it's important that she's back. Maybe. Maybe just in a flashback. I'll even take a flashback. Okay, there's so much more we could talk about, but like Carmen and Shane trying on a quinceanera dress, it's time for our (laughs) quickie round. (laughs) This time around, we're talking hottest, cringiest, and saddest moments of season three. Let's start with hottest. Like Carmen. (laughs) Everything Carmen. Uh, (laughs) I mean, particularly uh, their their sex scene after, after Shane meets her family for the first time and can get out of that horrible dress. That seam is damn hot. <laughs> Shane is wearing the white undershirt and like leaning on the table with the cigarette in her mouth, and Carmen Ooh. is like dancing in the little dress with the garter uh, belt. Yes. Yeah. Good lord. Yeah. It was very sexy. I'm gonna take a turn here because the hottest moment for me is my baby Alan Cumming. <laughs> um, I love Alan Cumming. He was my first crush ever when I was like five, and I know it's weird. You were queer from the womb. <laughs> what can I say? Um, but I think you're, you were a gay man from the womb. In <laughs> that is accurate. All of my first crushes were all like older gay men, so this makes a lot of sense. But uh, yeah, just like. As Billy Blakey, he was amazing, and he was just so vibrant. Come on, listen up, lesbians. I know you don't want to talk about all that cock and condom stuff, do you? No. You want to you wanna celebrate the snatch, don't you? And like all Alan Cumming scenes, I rewatch them, because I had to. It's my boo. You want to venerate the vagina. You want to praise the pussy. <laughs> Um, I don't know. This wasn't like my hottest things. I think like we're we are all in agreement about the Carmen Shane scene. Um, but I did love. There's a flashback to young Bet in college when um, Bet realizes she's a lesbian, but she's dating a guy who's gay. And I think they're looking through like a collection of like Herb Ritz photos. And the actress who is playing the young Bet actually looks a lot like Jennifer Beals, and she is wonderfully wearing a flash dance uh, sweatshirt in Perfect. the scene, which was just like a mwah. All right, should we move on to cringiest? Um, for me, that moment when Angus was mansplaining to Kit and, oh yeah, and Betty returns. I forgot <laughs> to mention that. Betty's back in the studio with Kit. Like, anyway, um, ugh, gross. Uh, I didn't want to watch the L word to see mansplaining. It's just a totally different thing when you're making your own record. This isn't some Daddy Warbucks record company. 
and Angus kind of sucked in that moment. So that was cringy for me. Um, my my cringy was um, Billy and Carmen. Carmen um, both used the term tranny oh. at different points during the season, which was an, a big yuck for me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's one of those things that was indicative of the time. Of the time, for sure. Um, to piggyback on that, I think, you know, Kit trying to convince Max to not follow through on his top surgery and transition, like, very turfy, not cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lastly, saddest, I think we're all in agreement, You Are My Sunshine is ruined forever. <laughs> Thank you, Eileen Chaikin, for that. <laughs> Anything else? Can we add a bonus? Sure. Yes. The bisexual speed dating was incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bisexual Speed Dating Night! Yeah! That was such a good scene. I love that so much because I have never seen such a thing. I am so down to coordinate one now. It was wonderful. That's my bonus. Follow at Eternity Martis for your next local <laughs> bisexual speed dating. <laughs> okay, that's it for this sad, sad episode. Next week, we pick things up a little bit with season four and all of its legendary guest stars. Sybil Shepard, anyone? Uh, sexy Dean Porter makes an appearance, and Tasha and Poppy are being debuted. Stay tuned. I'm Erica Lenti. I'm Eternity Martis. I'm Michelle Turingen. And I'm Rachel Giza. Off the Chart is produced by Corey Mesquita and Rachel Matlow. Our theme is by Kit Coolett. For those of you who want to go back on this journey with us, like In the Trenches, all six seasons of the original L Word are now available in Canada on Crave. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at Extra Magazine. And Mia Kirshner, if you're listening, we especially want to hear from you. Send us a TikTok. Until next time, 